Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Macris Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport, and the media. Well, welcome to this uh, podcast on behalf of Aquis Exchange. And I'm Michael Wilson, and I'm joined by my good friend, David Buick. And today, very pleased to say, we're joined by a woman who's huge experience of finance, the city and politics, um, and, and lots more as well, as we're going to find out, Case Winburn. Welcome to, to this podcast. What on earth took you to King's College in London, if I may say, one of the finest further education establishments in the world, because I went there too. <laughs> you did, you, you did, you did medical research there after all your, your your Welsh childhood as it were? I did indeed but I grew up in a very small Welsh village uh, where everybody knew what I was doing and my parents knew what time I came home before I got up in the morning so the furthest I could get away from that was London the, <laughs> the big smoke at the time so that was my decision to go to London and King's at the time was the very best or in fact it was Queen Elizabeth College I applied to the year it merged with King's was the year I joined in in 85 so very long time ago, but uh, King's was definitely very good to me. So tell me about medical research. That is, it's, it's, I can't remember, actually. I know obviously it had a medical school, but medical research, wh- why did you not go down that route? So my interest uh, certainly was always science. I was very much a science-minded individual, like the logic of science, like the discipline that science gives you. But I found after I did my PhD was that I didn't want to spend my time in the lab. I liked people too much. So I needed a job that took me out uh, and about. So I went to work in the pharmaceutical industry for a couple of years before deciding actually that was very, very limiting. Currently friends with a lot of traders who joined the city after I graduated. And so they introduced me to the role of a pharmaceutical analyst. Brilliant job where you get to look at all of the pharmaceutical companies, all of their drug pipelines, and put a valuation on them. I've often wondered, having used analysts, you know, as, as on, on the end of a phone, a bit like using commentators like David Buick, but very, very kind of specialised analysts. Are the companies generally opening doors and opening their files to you? Certainly when I joined as a pharmaceutical analyst, I think I was the first person in the city to have a doctorate in medical research. So understood the pipelines, understood the science behind things and could make a judgment on whether I thought the drug was likely to make it through. And if it was, what its competitive environment was going to look like. So who else was going to succeed and and where it was going to compete. That was an unusual situation back then because most of the analysts were just finance analysts who had a sectoral knowledge because they happen to have, have worked in, in the space long enough. So it was very different and it, it, I guess, gave me my unique selling point. It allowed me to move from a boutique investment bank that I joined um, in the days of MC Securities, which very few people and your listeners will have heard of, a company set up by Hans-Jörg Rudloff in his uh, post-Credit Suisse days. And I moved from his boutique to Deutsche as a result of the work I was doing, um, not only on pharmaceutical research and valuing pipelines, but I also did uh, the early days of the Novartis deal when he sat on the Sandoz board and Sandoz and Sibagaygi came together to form Novartis, the world's largest pharmaceutical company. So it kind of put me on a map a little and allowed me to to move to one of the big guys, to to Deutsche Bank at the time. Okay, just I could interject here now because... What's happened in the last, I think, particularly 10 years 
when all these biotech companies have come up and so many drug pipelines clogged up, need new products, need new products. Do you think it would have been more exciting to being, how can I put it to you, 25 now, um, with the world open to you, if you see what I'm driving at? In, or do you think that you really enjoyed the path that you had in that area um, and there was enough to because it was so modern in those days. Whereas now, I mean, you know, there are a dime a dozen, some of these um, biotech companies, and also some of the big drug operators have got their own biotech sections and do particularly well. It's just, it, it just interests me how you actually sell them um, to the investing community. So for me, the it's the same for any small, innovative, high growth company that's based on, on IP. And, you know, whether it's technology generally, whether it's fintech or whether it's biotech, Ultimately, this is about the disruptors. This is about those with new technology, new ideas, coming in and blasting you know, the, the, the status quo, taking away the, the competitive advantage those very large players have always had. And certainly when I was working in the field through the 90s and, and early 2000s, it was very much about the biotechs were the real powerhouse of innovation. They were where the, the big drug discoveries were being found. And then all of the pharmaceutical companies somehow managed to either buy them up or indeed joint venture with them in such a way that they took all of the product from them very early on. So you ended up with a period whereby biotech became big pharma very quickly. From where you are now at KPMG and you've got a very broad based and huge knowledge and everybody's got enormous respect for you. What interests me now that everybody talks about London being the fintech capital of Europe. Would you agree with that? I think London is one of the fintech capitals of the world, not just of the Wonderful. continent. Wonderful. Wonderful. So, in my ears. <laughs> we're a really great centre that nurtures innovation and we have an ecosystem that supports that innovation. And it's the ecosystem for financial services generally in London as a global financial centre that makes it such an attractive place for those fintech firms to come. And even if they weren't homegrown, in terms of the you know, original innovation being mm. done here. They often come here very early on their, in their journey in order to have that ecosystem to really develop and have the experience of those bigger firms that they need to sell into or indeed have as, as their customers. What, what took you into politics? So I had a, quite a convoluted journey to politics. It was never an intent. I never had any burning ambition to do politics. So I grew up apolitical. And for me, it didn't come about until much later on. So I'd done my time in investment banking, went on to run a hedge fund, a biotech hedge fund for a few years, and decided my kids were small, I wasn't seeing them. So I was going to give up and take a career break for a short while whilst the children were young. And, and I ended up getting involved in very local politics at my local town, where they were putting a stainless steel lift on the outside of a medieval building, which I thought was an outrageous thing to be doing and couldn't understand why. So I had the time to go and speak to the town clerk, whom I didn't even know existed before because I'd never been involved in the local politics. And she told me, well, if you have a view on this, why don't you get yourself elected? Then you can have a vote and you can stop it. And indeed, I leaned upon a lot of my legal friends in the, certainly in the city, in those days to help me have the legal arguments for why we didn't need to do what they thought they needed to do. So politics was very, very local as my beginning. Then went on to county council because the two are naturally entwined in a rural community. 
And then I met one David Cameron the day he became the official leader of the opposition. And uh, unbeknown to me, he'd asked me to give his opening uh, introductory remarks to his first ever speech as conservative leader. And so I did, and I think the rest is history. He persuaded me to be on his A-list and persuaded me that I really needed to, to join the, the ranks of politicians in order to make a, a real difference in life. And then for your, your, your on to becoming an MEP in 2009, and I'm dying to hear what that was like, because you hear so many conflicting stories about what the atmosphere was like. I mean, I've got this private view, and you're probably going to tell me I'm completely mad, that we were never first division in the European Union. I never felt, even since the days of Charles de Gaulle, going back to 1975, when we were eventually allowed into the European Union. And when you listen to the comments made over the years by Jacques Delors, Trichet, Juncker, it always came across as tiresomely anti-British. Is that just a figment of my imagination or is there a brain of truth in it? I think it, it probably hops back to the days when, you know, de Gaulle said no, and but he said mm. no, no, no. He said it three times to us. And, and I think there is that sentiment that, that the UK was never made to feel particularly welcome. But I think that was the olden days of when it was a very small select group of countries by the time I joined in 2009, there were 27 countries of which the UK was one. So we were 27 countries. And for me, it was very much a, a case of the larger member states had the most say. So the UK had an enormous say. Mm -hmm. Indeed, the EU only became the size it did with the accession of the Central and Eastern European countries because the UK pushed for it. So for me, by the time I got there in 2009, all of those countries were members. They had all been um, seriously integrated into the system by then. And so there had been a major switch from French being the dominant language of the EU institutions to English now being the language of choice. So even in you know, every piece of legislation I ever negotiated in the parliament, and there were over a hundred of them in the 10 years I was there that I sat in negotiating, all of them were done in English. So English was the spoken language of the parliament. English dominated. The UK dominated significant numbers of the senior positions in the commission. We also had a significant role in terms of all of the secretariat, the big committees. And we had secondees from the FCA and from the bank in the Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee that I sat on. So I think we had influence that I'm not sure people back home necessarily understood how much. This is so interesting, isn't it? Because what, what you're actually saying, is, that paraphrases, is, is, is that, that there was a role for the UK within the EU as, as a sort of reforming, perhaps, um, I don't know, well, yes, reforming, let's, let's, let's say it, a, a, a reforming power within, within, within the EU. Do you think it was a, it was a, we made a fundamentally bad decision to leave that? It's difficult to say that we made a fundamentally bad decision because people make decisions based upon the information that they had at the time. And I can see why people were frustrated with Europe as a whole and the direction of travel. And if you didn't have all of the information that I had, for example, by sitting in the, the, in the middle of it and understanding everything that was going on, it's very easy for national governments of all political colors 
to actually go to Europe and say, you know, all the good things that came out of the system were done by the national government and all the bad things were forced upon them by the Europeans. And you don't just have that issue in the UK, you have that in every single country that is part of the EU. And I'm told any big block, it's exactly the same. Anything that goes well, you take the local credit and anything that goes badly, you blame it upon the central system. And ultimately, I think all politicians have had to learn from that. So I think the other 27 countries in the EU have learned a very big lesson that you cannot take the credit locally for things that are done you know, supranationally and anything that's gone wrong locally, you, you need to take the, the blame for as well. I, I wanted to ask you because we've been some pretty heavy people uh, representing this country in the European, going back to Lord Christopher Soames back in the middle 70s to Christopher Tugutat, to Lord Mandelson. And yet this message that you're giving us in a very calm, concise, clear and cogent way has never got across to the people of the United Kingdom. This is the first time I've heard it. And I find that absolutely jaw-dropping. I think it gives you an indication as to the power of Westminster and the fact we never felt that we were fully part of the system. And if you think about the power the UK had in negotiating in Brussels, I mean, we were never part of Schengen, which was the biggest political project that the EU had ever embarked upon. We carved out an exemption for ourselves along with a, a few other countries. We also were never part of the legal and justice system. We had a permanent opt-out on that. And indeed, we even had an original opt-out on the social chapter, which meant that none of the um, anything that involved employment or the social aspects of the EU were applicable to us. That was changed, of course, when Tony Blair decided that he wanted to opt in. So we ended up with a lot more of the social legislation now coming from Brussels that we didn't have to have, but our government had chosen to do it. These are all things that I think when the media give you stories, it's difficult. You know, the EU didn't get everything right. There were some strange anomalies that you know, things would happen and things would, would be signed off that sometimes the UK in the early days had not spent enough time thinking about the consequences. So we never really made major objections to. By the time I got there in 2009, it was a coalition government. We had a deputy prime minister who'd been an MEP and understood the system. We had a prime minister who was open to, to doing things differently. And I can remember meeting with Christine Lagarde and as she was finance minister at the time for France. And she met with me and said she was meeting all the senior women on the ECON committee to give them some mentoring and to offer uh, any assistance she could. She was very, very collegiate. And she said to me, Kay, the UK's never understood that you can shape the EU, you can shape it how you want. And Christine taught me very well that if you want to make a real big difference, go in very early, do the, what we call in the parliament own initiative reports, where instead of letting the commission take the initiative, the parliament could put forward ideas on what the legislation should look like and what should be on that regulatory agenda. So we did, and you know, there were moments when we did things like the foresight project on high frequency trading. So you can influence things if you get in early and you're part of the negotiating team standing on the sidelines at a very late stage saying, 
I didn't agree to that. Has never been a way of, of really influencing a system that has got so many countries and so many vested interests. One thing that Michael's got a, a, several issues that he wants to chat to you about, just to keep a bit of continuity going. The relationship between the president of the ECB, particular Mario Draghi, who now got a, such a good job in Italy, and Christine Lagarde now, that's a hospital pass, isn't it? I don't know. I think the ECB as an independent central bank does a phenomenal is it? job. Is um, it? I think it's doing a phenomenal job for the for the US. No, but is it is it independent? Is what I meant. Yes, it is. Okay. All right. Okay. And and it is, and I can say that with some authority because the European Parliament would have loved to have scrutinised the ECB slightly differently. They would come for a quarterly dialogue with the Econ Committee and would keep us informed. But they are independent and genuinely during the crisis, I can tell you the successive Eurozone crises of my first term, when we had many countries going through some significant difficulties, the ECB under Triche at the time um, would constantly come to the Econ Committee and explain why it wouldn't use its balance sheet to bail out individual Eurozone countries why it wouldn't have a more interventionist monetary policy and that he would not use the balance sheet of the ECB to do that. Obviously a change of person at the top meant that the, the, you know, when Draghi came in, he said he would use whatever it took and that he would use his big bazooka were the words he used in the, the committee. To go from zero to three trillion at one stage was a significant change in policy so I would say that, yes, they have demonstrated the independence of the ECB. That, 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 that's absolutely fascinating. Just on, on sort of shining a spotlight on, on big organisations, could, could I turn your attention to the IMF? And, and uh, you know, recently we've had allegations about Kristalina, Georgieva and, and so on. And we had, you know, the, the unfortunate um, affair with Dominic Strauss-Kahn and so on. And, and nobody, do, do you feel as though its credibility is, is in crisis at the moment? I mean, and, and, and if, if not, or indeed if so, what, what does it actually do? Is it important, do you think? So I've known Christina since her days as commissioner. So she spent the, a term as a commissioner alongside Jonathan Hill and indeed was one of the most helpful commissioners during her period um, in Brussels. So, and I always found her totally honorable and always, always ready to do the right thing. Um, she did a term at the World Bank, obviously, which is where this, this allegation has arisen from. The World Bank and some of those institutions, I understand, operate in very opaque ways. So I can understand how accusations get made, but given that the IMF have just cleared her of any wrongdoing and have effectively said that they have full confidence in her. I have to trust that their system of, of checks and balances has worked. And that, you know, I've only ever known her as an honorable commissioner and, and always respected her work. So I'm assuming that the IMF have done the checks and that yeah. she's been cleared of any wrongdoing. It's, it's just that the, the IMF is always seen as a shoe-in for Europeans, isn't it? And, and the World Bank a shoe-in for people from the, from the United States and so on. Which, doesn't to me actually sound as if doesn't and that's not it's not corrupt or anything like that but it just sounds a bit the old boys or old girls club really 
I, I think it's where the money comes from, ultimately, Michael. The, the biggest <laughs> funding comes from those two regions, and therefore they have a, a say over who actually becomes the head of both of those, you know, any of those institutions, to be fair. And they've divvied it out in that way because the U.S. as the biggest payer has decided the World Bank is where it, it, it has more clout. Uh, ultimately, I think I would take it up with, with the governments of, of the largest countries who pay into that. And they feel that if they are the biggest payers, they deserve to have a say in who runs them. What you've told us in the last 20 minutes, I mean, it's just breathtaking. I wish I'd known a bit more about it before and you elucidated it brilliantly. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about David Cameron, um, who I thought held together a coalition government in very difficult circumstances, brilliantly. But what he didn't do for me was he didn't come back from Brussels or from Frankfurt or from Berlin, where it was a bone from Angela Merkel. He came back with a couple of scraps off the table. And if he'd come back with a bone, maybe we would still be members of, of the European Union. Do you think that the situation in terms of what he thought he brought back from the European Union was acceptable or was it really an apology? I have to say, I think the problem was always that what he came back with was a very technical set of exceptions. But the EU is a very technical place. And so they thought they had given him some significant concessions. And indeed, they would have worked through as being significant in the long run. But in the short term, it's very difficult to have a technical argument when everybody ultimately votes with their hearts. You know, this was very much about you know, the argument about remain, even just the words, as opposed to yes and no. These are, these are all strange things that happened that I think started to make it much more of an emotional vote rather than one that was based solely upon the pragmatic facts and figures. And, you know, whether it was named as Project Fear for the Remain camp and the Leave camp had you know, managed to find a lot of traction with things, you know, we all know that the EU had things that it needed, significant reform. I mean, those of us who worked in the system knew it needed reform. You know, we'd identified huge numbers of things that, that needed a change and we were working on them. But they take time. It's a huge tanker. It takes a long time to turn around. And so the reform agenda was, was not fast enough, I think, to have the referendum when we did. My suspicion is if we'd had the referendum 10 years later, it may well have been a very different EU that we were facing into and different rhetoric. But we are where we are. And I understand why people did what they did and, and voted in the way that and the manner that they did. But it was very difficult to, to talk about the EU in a short period of time when people had misunderstood the way it had evolved over the years. The fact that you know, English had become the spoken language of the EU. The fact that the UK as one of the three largest countries was always at the table. We used to describe it as a three-legged stool. This is about Germany, the UK and France. The three-legged stool and, and you'd have a group of, of German-speaking countries would line up behind Germany the French-speaking countries would line up behind France and everyone else would line up behind us. And I can tell you, our group was usually the biggest group by a long way. So the fact that, you know, they even thought we were leaving, they were mortified because all of those people who aligned behind us, and that's, you know, the whole of, of Northern Europe effectively lining up behind us, they couldn't understand why we just didn't want to see it through, why we didn't use our power and influence to change the things we didn't like. 
But when you've made the decision, the vote was taken, the parameters were, were set, that if it was a simple majority in favor, we would leave, you have to accept it. And certainly I ran the campaign in Wales for the Conservative Party. We lost, we lost badly. I accepted it. I moved on to try and work out what that new relationship needed to be. Where were we now going to go? How were we going to have a reset of the relationship? What did it actually now mean and involve us having to change in order to prepare for us leaving at the end of the transition period? Yeah. All of oh, those cool. things you just have to accept. You know, we live in a democracy and you may yeah. not like the answer sometimes, but you have to just deliver it. Domestically, let's let's turn our attention, if we may, to, to equal opportunities. What what do you actually what do you actually feel about that? Is it seems to be a big issue, doesn't it? It comes up now and again. Oh, do, you, do you think that the boards are more conscious of this? That that you know the the move from shareholders to stakeholders is having an effect on this and so on. It, Could I also add in because it, I think it's all part of it. Your views, care if we may, on ESG uh, and investments, you know, uh, ethical investments. Uh, I must say, I think the shareholder is beginning to get a very thin end of the wedge. No, absolutely. And I think ESG is the right frame for this. And, you know, the S component of that has to have at its heart people. You know, the impact, societal impacts on people are huge by corporations. And therefore, it's an important element of it. And I once got told, I used to, to talk about female representation as a minority representation. And a very knowledgeable and, and highly respected German MEP said to me, Kay, why do you refer to the, 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 the whole of the, the population of women as being, you know, sort of needing 30% representation in society? Why aren't you asking for 52%, which is how much you represent society? And I was flummoxed. You know, as common as you are the majority, not the minority, why are you asking only for halfway house? And it was a, a real light bulb moment for me that actually just fighting for minor representation doesn't really cut it. There is a reason why you need to have a diverse board. If you're a company representing, you know, your employees, your stakeholders more broadly, your customers, and, and your regulators, potentially, if you're a regulated company. And it's not just diversity on gender, it's diversity on background, it's diversity on, on experience, and diversity in terms of ethnicity. But it's, it's all sorts of diversity. And to just say that, you know, all, all men are able to represent and, and all women can't is just nonsensical, and nobody would ever argue for that in this day and age. But likewise, you know, why 30%? Why not 50%? Why are you capping it? Why, why put a target that is well below representation in the community? So for me, you know, this is about doing the right thing and giving companies the evidence that demonstrates that diverse thinking is good at all levels of the company, not just at the board. I mean, there's no point having good diversity at the board. You need it all the way down your firms. And firms are really good at graduate recruitment now, which gives them, you know, gender balance, which gives them a lot more diversity in terms of their background for recruitment and in terms of ethnicity of their, their staff. But I do think we still got a problem moving from the mid-ranking of firms to the executive. And there is a serious drop-off of, of all of those sort of diverse groups. And that's not good enough. 
So we need to help people understand where the problems are, why the fall off, why do we go from parity at graduate recruitment to actually ending up finding the skew again at the senior levels. And companies have got to put measures in place to try and remedy it. Because that diversity of thought is really important. And, you know, we've just published, KPMG has published some social mobility data. You know, we're a private partnership. We don't need to publish this type of data, but we thought it was important that our employees understood that we care, that we don't just care about our graduate recruitment, we care about the way our partners turn out. Are our partners representative of the community at large? And we found out when we looked at our partners and directors that you know, our representation from non-private sort of private school backgrounds and from you know, socioeconomic classes, which were relatively well off, were less represented than they should have been. I'm a, a vice chair of the firm and I come from a very poor socioeconomic background. I went to university on a full grant and on a full maintenance grant because my parents couldn't afford to send me anywhere. But I went to university and not only did I do my first degree, I also did my PhD on a fully funded regime. There's got to be something more than, you know, discrimination, surely. I think we've got a lot of research to still do. And some of it is, is because there are other pressures. So whether it be familial and both ends, by the way, not just having children, mm -hmm. it's also having elderly parents and caring responsibilities at both ends of the spectrum. Whether it's that, it may be in part, but it's not the whole whole sort of problem. I think there are more things to it. You know, I have, I have female colleagues of mine who've decided that when the pressure got significant, that they decided that they'd prefer to go and do something else and have actually established their own companies and have gone off to set up their own entrepreneurial businesses instead because yeah. they felt that they preferred the, the, the return for them was greater working for themselves than it was working within the system at that stage of their lives. And we have to get to the, 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 the real nuts of the problem, what's the problem. We've got to go and do the research. We've got to analyze why people are leaving and at certain points in their careers and then address it. You know, and we're getting much better at data analytics. So let's go and actually take the data and actually see what it's telling us. Go and ask the awkward questions to find mm -hmm. out why. And I think, you know, until you're prepared to do that, you're not going to find out. It might be something simple that would have, you know, one comment might have changed someone's decision on whether or not they were going to leave. And sadly, in some companies, a female, senior female exec leaving has a significant impact upon some of the statistics at the higher management levels. And the same you know, on boards. One single female director leaving has a big impact potentially on a board if you've only got one or two members. Well, I was going to say, are you, in, in, are you in, in, in as many words as you like, optimistic about the future of the UK, given we've, given we're off on this sort of independent route? So I, I am extremely optimistic um, with a few caveats. I think we've got to do a lot more detailed thinking on how we're going to get from A to B. Um, we've still got a lot of work to do on our future regulatory framework, on the way in which we're going to pass law in the future, given that we're no longer part of the EU. So there's lots of detail we still need to work through. But overall, I am hugely optimistic that with the culture of the UK, with the way that we actually managed to innovate our way out of difficulties. You know, Big Bang for me the first time round was not about deregulation at all. 
It was about innovation. It was about allowing competition. It was about embracing people from elsewhere, coming into our markets and actually competing locally and allowing us to be the best that we could possibly be and be the center for that excellence to develop. And I'd like to think that with the big shocks that we've had, and you know, Brexit and COVID have been two very big shocks to the UK. And actually, I think it makes us fundamentally go back to look at what we're good at. ESG is also one of those that we can now take the lead in. You know, whether it be the climate change agenda with TCFD that we've now actually got all our companies on the premium listing to actually report under, whether it's the stress testing for our banks and insurers that we've led on, we've got a role to play here. ESG ultimately is about data and collecting data and then making decisions upon that data. Surely that's where the UK should be leading. It's where we, we have a real strength. And if we see this as being something that we can genuinely influence globally, then why wouldn't we? So for me, you know, governance comes naturally to us. We have rule of law. We have a really good structure here. We've got a legal system that everybody respects. So governance comes to us very naturally. The social impact element of this, the UK has always had very high standards of welfare, very high standards with regards to modern slavery and everything else. We are really in the vanguard already in that social impact space. And on the environment stuff, I think we have already demonstrated that you know, our transition from coal, we've, we've started to actually meet the targets that others made and committed to before us, but we have actually been doing what we said we would do. And it's going to be difficult. We've done the easy stuff, there's the difficult stuff to come. But ESG is an area, whether it be green finance or indeed whether it be funding transition, which for me is the critical point, the billions that we're going to need and trillions to actually move from a high carbon you know, intensive country and, and world into a low carbon one actually plays to our strengths. It's again, it's innovation, it's growth, it's funding. How do you fund that transition? All things the UK, I am seriously optimistic. If they put their heads together and work collaboratively, the UK genuinely can make a difference in this, not just locally, but globally. Okay, I've loved every minute of this podcast. It's been absolutely terrific. Thank you very much indeed. Absolutely wonderful. A pleasure. Indeed, from me too, Kate. Thank you very much indeed. That's wonderful. Thank you so much.